Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Juneteenth weekend saw the launch of a campaign called End the Exception to promote passage of the Abolition Amendment, a joint resolution co-sponsored by Senator Jeff Merkley and Representative Nikema Williams. The resolution would remove the slavery clause from the 13th Amendment to read that, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude may be imposed as a punishment for a crime. Originally written, the 13th Amendment permits slavery and involuntary servitude as punishment for a crime. Today, the average incarcerated worker earns 86 cents per hour, but five states, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, Mississippi, and Texas, pay their imprisoned workers nothing. Incarcerated people work for the state and private companies manufacturing furniture for public colleges, making hand sanitizer, and laundering scrubs and linens for state hospitals. But most of the work incarcerated laborers do is maintaining the prison facilities, which entails doing the prison laundry, working in the kitchen, gardening, and engaging in custodial and janitorial work. Some progress has been made on the state level with Colorado, Nebraska, and Utah abolishing prison slavery in their state prisons. Groups such as the Abolish Slavery National Network are working with grassroots activists in 24 other states to do the same. Iowa climate activist Jessica Reznicek, 39, who sabotaged the Dakota Access Pipeline and caused millions of dollars of damage in an attempt to protest it, has been sentenced to eight years in federal prison for damaging an energy facility. In court, Reznicek said that she committed her acts against the pipeline because she was afraid it would spill and contaminate drinking water in Iowa. At the time of the action, she publicly acknowledged her participation in it. She and another woman, Ruby Montoya, 31, took part in the action together. At the time, Reznicek was a member of the Catholic Worker Social Justice Movement. During her sentencing, Reznicek said, quote, The toxins we enter into our waterways here in Iowa enter the Mississippi River. End quote. According to the sentencing guidelines, Reznicek could have gotten 20 years in prison because of prior convictions for trespassing during her activism and a sentencing enhancement of terrorism for attempting to halt the flow of oil, retaliating for state and federal government's decisions to approve the project and wanting to prevent the government from condoning future projects like the Dakota Access. Montoya will be sentenced on July 30th. Twelve prisoners went on hunger strike at Ely State Prison in Nevada in response to State Senate Bill 22, which empowers prison administrators to cut off postal access to people being held in administrative segregation. Prison administrators are using the new legislation to cut off access to whole segregation units at a time. The hunger strikers began fasting on June 22nd, which means they've completed two full weeks. We now have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On the morning of June 1st, 
a protest started at Lawrence County Jail in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. Roughly 50 detainees were protesting the law library computer kiosks being out of order and refused to go into their cells before lunch. The Newcastle Police, County Police, and the County Sheriff's Office arrived at the jail and discharged a flashbang and pepper spray. No injuries were reported. A commissioner was interviewed by Newcastle News, stating, quote, the inmates weren't fighting, they were just protesting, and all available units were called. In response to the computer kiosks being out of order, the warden, Brian Covert, responded, stating, quote, It's an informational guide and online legal research tool tailored for inmates. I'm going to make sure that we get this fixed and hopefully we'll get it fixed today or tomorrow. On the evening of June 4th, a disturbance occurred at the Hawaii Community Correctional Center in Hilo, Hawaii. It was reported in a housing module designated for detainees awaiting trial. Plexiglass windows were broken and a small fire was started. The cause of the disturbance is unknown and no injuries were reported. Allegedly, the prison's emergency response team used non-lethal means to gain compliance. The Star Advertiser also reported that at the time of the disturbance, 126 prisoners had received COVID-19 tests due to a recent outbreak. 37 tested positive. Three women prisoners at Logan Correctional Center in Illinois launched a hunger strike on June 7th in response to their unit being flooded with sewage from a leaking pipe, causing the women to be living and walking through their own excrement, mold, and maggots. The women were denied access to hepatitis A and B shots, and 49 women from the unit were relocated by facility management to a unit formerly used as temporary housing during the pandemic. This unit lacked video conferencing kiosks and had poor Wi-Fi reception, which the women also cite as a reason for their strike. On June 9th, the women ended their strike upon being allowed to return to their unit following the pipe's repair. However, prisoners reported that the unit was not sufficiently cleaned and still smelled of feces. Two detainees escaped from St. Francois County Jail in Missouri on June 7th. According to the Daily Journal, the prisoners escaped by removing a toilet sink unit from the jail wall and exiting through the plumbing chase in the early morning. They were recaptured a few hours later. On Monday, June 14th, 31 of 38 immigrant detainees being held at Bergen County Jail in Newark, New Jersey, launched a hunger strike to protest their ongoing detention. The hunger strike was also in protest of recent relocations and deportations done without notice to lawyers or targeted detainees. The next day, 14 protesters were arrested outside of the jail in an attempt to prevent an ICE vehicle from leaving to transport a detainee to a federal deportation hearing. Two prisoners escaped from Southwest Multi-County Correctional Center in Stark County, North Dakota on June 15th. They were both recaptured a few hours after escaping. On June 15th, while two teenagers were awaiting extradition at Douglas County Court in Missouri, one detainee allegedly body-slammed a guard and stole his keys, then unlocked the other detainee's cell and both attempted to escape. KPVI News reported that the guard's hip was broken during the escape and that both detainees are now in custody. On the evening of June 21st, 19 prisoners refused to return to their cells at Clay County Detention Center in Liberty, Missouri. 
An emergency response team was called in, no injuries were reported, and the cause of the disturbance is unknown. At around 4.30 p.m. on Tuesday, June 22nd, 17 detainees at Northern Neck Regional Jail in Warsaw, Virginia, were involved in a disturbance allegedly due to one detainee missing a meal call and other detainees refusing to return to their cells. According to the superintendent of the jail, as quoted by Richmond Times-Dispatch, quote, Officers observed the inmates preparing to resist officer entry into the unit by throwing water on the floor, attempting to cover observation windows, tie sheets and blankets to access doors to prevent entry, fabricating face masks from the sheets, positioning mattresses as shields and barricades, positioning trays to be used as weapons, and covered surveillance cameras. Two guards were struck during the disturbance, and a, quote, chemical restraint was used against the prisoners. Two detainees escaped from Jim E. Hamilton Correctional Center in Hodgin, Oklahoma, on June 23rd. Both were recaptured shortly after escaping custody. Lena Mercer of Perilous Chronicle reported that on June 23rd, 20 to 30 prisoners at SCI Phoenix, a 3,800-bed state prison facility near Philadelphia, began a hunger strike. The strikers are protesting against the use of an intensive management unit, IMU, or segregation unit, inside the facility. They hope to bring attention to the use of segregation units that they say most people do not fully understand. Inside these restricted release units, prisoners are held in isolation without programming and with no redress to remove themselves from the enhanced detention. Several of the strikers participated in the uprising at the James T. Vaughn Correctional Center in Smyrna, Delaware in 2017 and were later transferred to Pennsylvania through Interstate Compact. These prisoners, known collectively as the Vaughn 17, were charged with crimes following the uprising and have since organized jointly in their own defense. In a June 1st statement, written in coordination with Philly Anti-Repression, a Philadelphia-based organization that helps people organize against state repression, the Vaughn 17 group decried the conditions inside the facility, quote, Here we are housed in our cells with only five hours of recreation per week, no programs, no schooling, no jobs, or anything else involving rehabilitation. The strike concluded on July 2nd after the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections began meeting demands by acknowledging the existence of the intensive management unit publicly, increased access to showers and phones, and the beginning of a path out of solitary confinement. One of the strike participants, Alejandro Rodriguez Ortiz, said in a public statement, quote, We look at the 10-day strike as a success. We wanted to thank you for all your support. We can only do so much from behind enemy lines. We wouldn't be half as successful without our comrades in the world. Two detainees escaped from Carson City Jail, Nevada, on the evening of Saturday, June 26th. Sheriff Furlong of Carson City reported that they jumped the fence when taking out the trash and have been recaptured. Six other people were arrested and, quote, three more people will be held accountable for aiding the escape. On the morning of June 28th, a disturbance occurred at the Swanson Correctional Center in Monroe, Louisiana. According to the News Star, prisoners barricade themselves inside a dormitory, using, quote, beds and mattresses to block the doors, not allowing guards to enter. 
Monroe police were called in to breach the dorm. The reason for this disturbance is unknown. Up next, we have a piece from Perilous Chronicle, entitled Prisoners Strike Against Racism and Colonialism in Canada's New Residential Schools, written by Abby Stadnick. Content warning. This piece contains references to suicidal ideation and graphic slurs. On July 1st, prisoners at seven institutions across Canada engaged in a coordinated one-day solidarity fast in honor of Indigenous children who died in the custody of the Indian residential school system, a carceral apparatus of church and state designed to, quote-unquote, kill the Indian in the child. With genocidal intent and effect, the system operated in Canada from the 1880s to 1996, when the last institution closed. According to prisoner advocate Sherry Mayer of Beyond Prison Walls Canada, three units at the Edmonton Institution in Alberta participated in the fast, along with individuals at the Saskatchewan Penitentiary, Saskatoon Correctional, Regina Correctional, and Pine Grove Correctional, all in Saskatchewan, prisoners at Fraser Valley Institute for Women in British Columbia, and the Toronto South Detention Center in Ontario also participated. The 24-hour fast, beginning at 12 a.m. on July 1st, took place on Canada Day as part of a larger grassroots movement to hashtag cancel Canada Day. The refusal to participate in any celebration of the Canadian Confederation was spurred by the recent recovery of over 1,500 unmarked graves at Indian residential school sites across the country as well as renewed attention to the fact that many thousands more will most certainly be found. Individual and systemic racism runs deep in prisons across Canada. An anonymous prisoner at the Edmonton Institution described in great detail the horrific treatment he has received at the hands of guards there. He said, We've been going through some really disgraceful stuff here. Just a lot of discrimination for mental health stuff. We are being called mental retards, retarded guys, he said. He further explained that the men in his unit were being refused brooms and standard cleaning products because, as one guard reportedly said, quote, you guys are too retarded to have a broom, unquote. In addition to these slurs, he reported segregation-like conditions, with prisoners having very little time out of their cells and being told that they don't deserve programs. He also spoke to conditions of lateral violence and blatant racism. Quote, it's pretty much like the bully effect, the ripple effect for the bullies. The guards were bullying these certain inmates, and then those inmates were bullying the severe mental health disorder guys. The mental health disorder guys can't defend themselves. So what they did is they bombed the other guys. It smelt like feces on the unit, and the guards came on the unit and said, quote, it smells like a reserve, which is the term used in Canada to refer to an indigenous reservation. He also detailed the institutional segregation of white and indigenous prisoners, noting that white prisoners were often treated better than indigenous prisoners. His job, he said, was taken from him for no apparent reason and given to a white man. They just targeted the indigenous people in here, he explained. 
I started really drawing my attention to that after the news broke about the children's deaths. And I started realizing that that's just the way it is here. You know, that white privilege is just the way of life inside these prisons. And it really started to affect me in a way where I just didn't want to live anymore. I just felt really suicidal." Unquote. In addition to the fasts and hunger strikes by prisoners, there were a number of solidarity actions organized by family members, advocates, and abolitionists on the outside. Dina Casey's, a mother of two incarcerated women who participated in the Solidarity Fast on July 1st, explained to Perilous correspondent Abby Stadnick what motivated her to participate. Well, I think it was important to, to not only um, stand in solidarity with all Indigenous inmates or in, in, in any inmates, but with also uh, me and my daughters both had really heart-to-heart talks and them realizing that their mother and their father, both of us, were Indian residential torture camp survivors. Their dad passed away. He didn't have that opportunity to heal at that at that moment. So, um, and then are there it being intergenerational trauma, and then realizing that those inmates in there, um, they're not only going through what we're going through, but they're going through it like in such a deep way because they're locked away from their family. They have no support system in there, you know? So they came together in solidarity to bring awareness and to honor those children, those 215-plus children that have been found, dug up in such a horrible way, right? Up next, we have more from David Campbell, former anti-fascist political prisoner, who recently did a year on Rikers Island. In this segment, he continues to talk about sticking it up, the various ways that prisoners resist their confinement. In his case, they had to strike in order to get masks and cleaning supplies to help protect them as COVID-19 spread throughout the facility. Last week, he told us about the conditions on Rikers and the lead-up to their strike. In this segment, he starts out with the aftermath of the strike, once they'd finally received media attention. Here he is. After that press conference thing, and we were like, you know, okay, so some, so it's out there now. Like, they're going to look bad if they don't do something, right? They, you know, started um, delivering cleaning supplies to the dorm, like sponges and mops and, like, you know, different disinfectant solutions and soap and stuff that, you know, we'd just been running out of and, like, there wasn't much of it. And uh, I think partly due to the fact that they, like, loaded this dorm up in a very short period of time for their whatever stupid bureaucratic, like, plan they had. Um, And they just, like, they didn't have enough hand soap, like, stocked to accommodate twice as many people. You know, like, there's not very much, like, good planning going on on Rikers. So, um, yeah, so, and they had been like, oh, we won't be able to get more for a few days, whatever, you know, and, like, once once it went out, once it went, they like, they started bringing all these cleaning supplies, um, and then the I think about two days later they started releasing people. It was when they started, um, yeah, like that was crazy too. When they started releasing people, the social worker guy who looked like Forrest Whitaker, <laughs> who lived in this, I didn't live, but like he he's like he had his office in this weird like little cubbyhole space, like kind of beneath the staircase, and yeah, this like like five foot tall like Forrest Whitaker looking guy would just like come out from out of the stairs and that's your social worker and he's like all right listen up 
if I call your name, you're going home. Starts reading off names. People were like, what? Like crowding around the bubble. The bubble's like where, where he was reading from. It's like a CO station that has plexiglass windows. So they have like their buttons and they're like computers and they're separated from you by like a plexiglass wall. And we call that the bubble because you can't get in. You'd have to go out of the dorm and they have to push a button to open that door from inside the bubble. So he, he was reading this out from the bubble. People are crowding around the windows, the plexiglass, you know, and just like, it was crazy. I mean, um, so out of 48 people in that dorm, everyone except 12 of us went home overnight, literally overnight. And it was insane. I had a lot of good friends that just like walked out and I was so happy for them. I had one friend who had an ice hornet. New York City, a lot of people know, doesn't share information with ice. But if ice finds out about your case, like if it's reported that you're an undocumented immigrant and you, you know, robbed an old lady or something, then, you know, I like the New York City government or DOC isn't, it cannot stop ice from showing up in uh, the intake, you know, pens the day you're supposed to be released and taking custody, right? Because they're feds, they have like, high, so, so if they find out about, so that's what happened with this guy. He, he had a case that was kind of high profile and there was some reporting on it and it was reported that he was undocumented. So he had an ice warrant. So the day that he was due to be released, he would have been taken into custody and probably spent a few months in an ice jail just to with him and then been deported. But because he was re released early, first of all, he, he only did about half of his time. He walked out and then, you know, I talked to him once and he was just like hanging out with his girlfriend, drinking and smoking, having a blast. And then I couldn't, you know, he wouldn't pick up his phone anymore. Like a couple of days later, I spoke to him after I got out and he just left, went back home, back to the home country and like had no trouble with ice because it was mid Corona. So like a lot of like that happened, which is like unheard of. You know what I mean? Like that is like one, once in a century, like that is crazy, man. So I didn't get released. It was unfortunate, but yeah, but when everyone left, they left all the too. So we just became wealthy, like incredibly jail wealthy. Like all these um, like ma mattresses, you know, and they, and they weren't like on their They weren't like normally they would like have people down there to like confiscate all the mattresses and put them in storage. But like they, they weren't, I mean, this, the system was kind of because of COVID. They, they weren't really. They not want to be in contact with you also? The COs? Yeah. They, uh, yeah, they, there was some avoidance of that. So like this. There's a policy where like the captain comes in and walks the dorm every hour. So a captain comes, I mean, more or less, just about every hour and just like signs the logbook, right? And then walks the entire length of the dorm, like checks, you know, the fire exit, make sure it's locked, you know, whatever. And then signs off in the logbook and walks out, right? So like you started to see like a captain would come in and kind of look around and just stand by the door and sign the logbook. Um, and like instead of walking down the aisle, like, you know, you started to see... Um, Sometimes the COs uh, would stay in the bubble for long stretches of time. There's, there's a CO in the bubble, and then there's a CO on the floor. That's your floor officer, right? There's like, you know, usually a little chair or something there. COs would not sit in that chair on the floor, even if that was their post, the floor officer post. They would spend like large amounts of time in the bubble. And then just to like pay lip service to what they were supposed to be doing, they would sit in the chair for a few minutes, you know, because it's all on camera. There's cameras everywhere at Rikers. Yeah, they started to avoid, they also started to, like at the beginning, treat us like, that was actually, I mean, it was, it was infuriating, but I can't really, you know, like, it, it was just dumb. They, they, there were anecdotes people were reporting about COs 
you know, just treating inmates like lepers, like, oh my God, you know, get away from me. You're going to, you're going to give me the Rona, you know? Uh, and especially after there were a few guys in our dorm that started to get sick, you know, it's all mouthful lower North. Like I heard you guys got the Corona, like get away from me. I can't do anything for you. You know, this is like a guy, a friend of mine went to intake to get a new ID band. You have to wear a wristband that they, and if you don't have that, like it's a problem. So he went to get a new one and the woman, the CEO who was handling it was just like refused and walked away because she had heard that there were sick people in our dorm. It's like, well, that's like your job. It's like your, I mean, I don't have any control here. Mm -hmm. Like, so, you know, like that. Yeah, it's just really, first of all, it's ignorant. Like you're the one going out into the world, not wearing a mask and coming back in here. So yeah, I mean, an inmate, like once it gets in among the inmates, it's going to spread like wildfire. So it's possible that we could give it to you. But like, really, I think we should be at least equally concerned about getting it from you, right? And like, there's just no, it's just dumb, really dumb. Did you get sick? No, not that I'm aware of. I didn't, I didn't feel sick, uh, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> it's like pretty amazing. Uh, I did not get sick. We, so we got, we got masks the day that we, um, we stuck it up and they said they were gonna give us a new mask every week, but that, yeah, let's talk about masks real quick. So they said they were gonna give us new mask every week, which is like, I understand there was like a mask shortage or whatever, but a little disposable surgical mask once a week is like not great. Um, there's supposed to be like 48 hours max, I think. Yeah. yeah. And you know, they weren't allowing people to send you masks, like anything fabric, like the, you know, like a homemade mask. Or, oh no, 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 you can't send that. No, can't have that. And then I think Meek Mill and Jay-Z donated a hundred thousand masks to Rikers. Yeah. Yo, big shout out to Meek Mill and Jay-Z. Yeah. So like, you know, that's crazy, but that happens like, I don't remember the exact time frame. I think it was around the same time that it was reported that the DOC had physically taken 30,000 masks from a storage unit on Rikers Island and given them to the FDNY after the FDNY had said that they had more than enough PPE to last through you know the next six months or whatever. And Rikers had said that they didn't have any masks, right? So it's just clearly like bullshit on a couple different people's parts, right? Um, and here we are, like, striking for something as simple as a mask, right? And the strike, I mean, listen, I, you know, now I can talk about it and it seems like, oh, you know, it's a thing that happened. But, like, it's just that it's in the past and it's, like, this thing that I've talked about a bunch of times, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's at that. But, like, you know, at the time, it was like, dude, I mean, you, you lose good time for this, you know? And, it, again, for people who are doing longer bids, Maybe it seems kind of silly, but man, I wanted to get in and get out. You know, 12 months is plenty, right? And if I start losing good time, you know, oh, I had another week, I had another month, and I, you know, max, uh, I could add another six months to my sentence, right? And when you have a short sentence and you're looking forward to getting your life back on track ASAP, you know, that, that thing starts to matter, you know, that sort of, sort of thing that starts to matter. So it was like a real, you know, it, it was like a tough decision. It was like, dude, this is what we got to do. I mean, we, we can't even get masks. Like, we're like begging for masks anymore. So, so... We, we did end up getting masks and, and um, they were kind of not as regular as they should have been. At a certain point, I would say maybe by like May or June, they seemed to somewhat have coronavirus under control in Rikers and masks were pretty regular. But like when I left, I got out October 16th, 161st anniversary of John Brown's raid on Harper Ferry. So I got out October 16th and like the numbers are starting to tick up. I guess we're in like the second wave now and it was starting then, right? Mid-October. So like the last week I left, they, they were starting to be like, yeah, we don't have masks. You know, you would go to the bubble and ask for a mask. You know, 
we're out. We're, we're trying to get some more this week. Like it started to become an issue again. So it was patchy. Well, that's like, you know, too long, didn't read. It was patchy. But we, we had masks regularly for a little while after we went on strike to get them at all. And, uh, and again, big shout out to Jay-Z and Meek Mill. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.